We're in the book of Jonah, and even if you're not somebody who is very familiar with the Bible, you may have heard of this story from the Bible of a man who was swallowed by a great fish for three days. And we're going to look at that one chapter per week through the month of June. And so today we'll look at Jonah chapter 1. And in the text, it's pretty clear what Jonah chapter 1 is about. It's about running away from God. And Jonah is a picture of somebody who's headed in the wrong direction. And I don't know if you have read the book of Jonah, uh, and perhaps it's the first time that you'll be interacting with this, but Jonah's not really that great of a guy, to be honest with you. He's, he's kind of a nationalist in many respects. He's uh, all Israel all the time. If it's not made in Israel, he doesn't want to buy it. And in fact, he wants to make sure the profits go down otherwise, too. Um, he's pretty engaged with his sense of his ethnicity, and he thinks he's superior to other people. And he doesn't want other people to thrive or to have the blessings that he's been experiencing from God. And he's very entitled. I don't know if you're familiar with an entitlement mentality. You deserve something. And this guy, especially in chapter 4, you'll see, I deserve to be treated a certain way. Even when God gives him blessings and they're taken away, he gets mad at God for that. And... You know, he is clearly directly disobedient to God's expressed will. Do you know anybody maybe who, uh, we don't in the same kind of way, but when God says, hey, do this, it's very clear, there's no even doubt. This is the way you live. This is the way you do it. And that person says, nah, I'm good. But not only that, says, I'm going to do the exact opposite. Now, if you're a church-going kind of individual, you would say, that's not the kind of person I want to learn from. And yet... This is Jonah. In fact, he's a prophet of God. He's supposed to be living and walking in God's ways. He's not got all the right words, but his life is headed in exactly the wrong direction. He's running away from God. And yet, God still calls him. God still pursues him. God still uses him. God still provides for him. And God still shows him the compassion he refuses to demonstrate to others. So as much as this book is about Jonah, and it's not like really a Jonah bashing thing we're going to go on necessarily. I know it feels like that. There's, there's a lot of upsides here too. It's really more about God's compassion in contrast. Who deserves God's love? Who deserves the forgiveness of God? Jonah thinks he's earned it, and other people haven't. And God flips the script on him and says, nope, everybody. It's the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. Shouldn't I care about the city? Shouldn't I care about the people, even those who are living in a way that is completely against me? It's about the heart of God. But here in Jonah chapter 1, we see Jonah running away from God. So let's take a look at that. And let's just read this together first. In Jonah chapter 1. And here's what we read. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. 
After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told him so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. They cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. If you want to hear what happens inside the fish, come back next week. (laughs) And Drew will be dealing with that text. But for today, we're in Jonah chapter 1. And let's just look at this for a little bit and see... By the way, if you're, if you're following along and you need the code for translation, that's what it is, H-G-I-E-J. Right? Yeah, that looks right. And if you have any confusion about that, Pradeep in the back can, can help you. We'd love for you to follow along. So let's take a look here at uh, this word of the Lord that comes to Jonah, and he runs away from God. And the first thing we see just in these opening verses, really verses uh, one through five as a whole, but starting in verses one through two, is that God's word to Jonah that comes is not only to him, it's also to the nations. In, in verses one and two, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son, son of Amittai. So here's a prophet, somebody who's been set aside by God to declare God's truth to the people. And God, that God who's in charge of this comes to Jonah and gives him a task. So this is a word to Jonah, that he is supposed to share to other people. Who are these other people? In verse 2, it's the great city of Nineveh. That's the word he's supposed to give. Now, Nineveh was in a kingdom that were, they were enemies to the Israelites. Jonah is an Israelite, and the Ninevites are the people who are their enemies. 
And God is saying, Jonah, I want you to go to your enemies and preach a message to them. And actually, listen to the content of this message. Preach against it. Its wickedness has come up to me. If any of you have ever watched Veggie Tales, I don't know how many, it's probably like 20 years old now. I don't know. If you look it up, there's one with, with, uh, with Jonah here too. And it has a picture of somebody going when he gets to Nineveh. And do you remember what they're doing, what their wickedness is? They're slapping each other in the face with fish. That's the great wickedness, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a different storyline. It's a picture for kids of like, that's a bad thing. Don't hit each other in the face with fish. But the actual Ninevites would sacrifice kids, kill them as offerings to the gods. And that's wicked. God says, I'm holding you accountable for that. This is a precious life that you've taken. So God's word's not just to Jonah. Actually, it's going out to the nations. Jonah was growing up at a time when it was good to be an Israelite. It was a bull market. Okay, The stock markets were up. It, territory was expanding. There weren't any immediate apparent threats. Good times for the average Israelite. In fact, as a prophet, Jonah had prophesied these times in 2 Kings 14 if you want to look at that later. But they still had enemies, and the most dreaded of these was the Assyrian kingdom. And Nineveh, this city in Assyria now, is supposed to hear a message from the God of Israel that he is holding them accountable. But Jonah's a prophet of Israel, not of Assyria, not of the Ninevites. So in the countries of those days, each country has its own God. Okay, I, I, I'm in this country, this is my God. I'm in that country, this is my God. You see it on the boat later. Everybody cries out to his own God. You see the presumption of the God of Israel here, right? He's the God of every country, of every nation. He's holding everybody accountable, not just Israel. You go to those people who say they have their own God and declare to them, the God who they're really accountable is me. That's who they're accountable to. And maybe you remember the scene with Elijah on Mount Carmel. He taunts those who call upon Baal. Maybe your God's on vacation, he says. But my God isn't, because he's the God who's always active, always working, and who holds everybody accountable. All nations, all individuals, not only those who acknowledge him. That's quite a bold claim. But as we'll see later, God can do that because according to Jonah, he made everything. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth and everything that there is. And so he holds everyone in it accountable. There's no other God like him. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. And even those who presume they are not accountable to him, whether or not they know it, they are. And we might presume that our sin is hidden you know, we're, the thing that we're not supposed, don't want to be held accountable for, we can cover up. But that's impossible. He's the God who sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And not only this, but those who have been sinned against, who have been hurt, 
can take comfort knowing that their God sees their hurt and will address wickedness. And there are a few more wicked than the Ninevites. It's these people Jonah is to go and preach to. And you'd think he'd be excited, right? He's been preaching prosperity to his people. Good times! And then God says, go and tell those people they're going to perish unless they turn to me. And why is it then that he heads in the opposite direction? Don't you think that would be nice? If you, know, you have sports analogies all the time. I'm a Denver Broncos fan. I love it if somebody says these are, you read all the things about the draft. You know, when Russell Wilson came to town, we're like, good times for the Broncos. It was a crash and burn. It was awful. I, I have probably an ungodly dislike of the, uh, the Raiders. I grew up not liking Oakland. I know somebody here is an, an Oakland fan too. But, and then they moved to Las Vegas. It gave me even more reason to dislike them. And then Tom Brady is part owner of it. It gives me even more reason to dislike them now too. It's like, ah. And if I were given a message to go to the Raiders and say, you will be, you'll never be Denver again, I'd be thrilled about that. So what is it? What's going on here? Why isn't he excited? He gets to go to these people and say, you're going to perish. Well, we'll find out. Because that's what happens. Is he goes in the opposite direction. He's running away from God. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He goes to Joppa. Forget about you know, finding Expedia deals or anything. He just buys the first ship he can get. Apparently, it's going to Tarshish. So if you're in Cincinnati and God says, go to New York... He's going to L.A. It's the wrong direction. He ran from God's revealed will to him. He was told specifically what to do. The ultimate authority in the world told him what to do. In fact, this is where he gets his paycheck as a prophet, and he runs away. He goes in the opposite direction. I had a time in my life early on when I ran away from an authority. I was told by Mrs. Johnson when I was a kindergartner that because I was talking in line, I had to go back to the room. We were on the way to the library. And I was not used to somebody, I guess, besides my parents telling me what to do because I ran literally from the school six blocks home. I'm sure she was terrified, but I wasn't thinking about her because she probably came back to the room and the kid was gone. She got into her car and started driving to our house, probably found out from the administration where I lived. I remember, I know she was looking for me because I hid from her in a bush. I saw her coming. <laughs> and then she's wandering around or whatever. I finally got home. And at least by my recollection, my, my mom was there. Me and me and I was about to, to make that connection with her. And Mrs. Johnson got there and spun me around and you know, grabbed me by the cheeks and gave me a little lecture. And I can still faintly smell her breath. It was not pleasant at all. And I had a little teddy bear. His name was Ben Fur, and my mom comforted me, and I went back, probably sucked my thumb, and just held Ben Fur for the rest of the day in the library. But I was running away from the authority because I knew I was in trouble, and I was going somewhere I thought I'd find safety. But you can't escape Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> Nor apparently can you escape God. He's far more powerful than she ever was. And I'm guessing for most of us, this concept of running from what an authority tells us to do, it resonates. Because all of us, at some point in our lives, we're running away from something. In fact, we're all running away from God. We're created 
in God's image to love and cherish him above all else. That's it. We have a built-in sense of God. But because of sin, our fallenness, we desire to assume God's role and structure our own lives according to our agenda. Even those who are committed to living for God are prone to wander. So many of the hymns that we sing recognize our hearts are constantly looking for something other than God. We want to be God. And we will not find rest until we recognize we're running away from him when we say that. Jonah received a specific word from God. We have the Ten Commandments. You can just start there today and say, am I running away from God? Just start looking at, you know, you have no other God besides me. If you value anything above God, then you've broken one of those commandments. You're running away from him. Jesus takes all those commandments and drives them to the deepest of level. I've never murdered anybody, but if you're angry with someone, that person made in God's image, you're on the hook for it. You're running away from God. You walk through all those commandments and Jesus shows us the problems in our heart. We all are prone to wander. We all run away. And there are various reasons for running from God. What was Jonah's reason, you wonder? It's told to us in chapter 4, just to give you a little foresight there. This is what it says in chapter 4, verse 2. If you even have your Bible open in front of you, you can see he says, That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sanding calamity. He didn't like the idea that these people who were his enemies would be shown the mercy of God. They didn't deserve it. They haven't earned the right to turn away from their sins and know your love and mercy. That's what he, he had a problem with God. God's mercy and compassion. Ironically, the very mercy and compassion that allowed him to be in his position is something he said, I want to keep it for myself. Certainly those people don't deserve it. He was mad. And when it came down to it, they weren't the right kind of people to be called God's children. They slapped each other with fish in the face for crying out loud. You know, they dressed differently. They ate differently. They talked differently. He didn't make the list of people who deserve to be cared for by him. It could be, I don't know for you who that might be, maybe a relative or a roommate, a nasty boss, a neighbor an offender from the past? Who in your life doesn't deserve the mercy of God and therefore yours either? Jonah did not want to go to them because he knew they might respond to the message he brought. So he flees. He says, I got my own agenda. I don't really care about these other people at the end of the day. I only care about myself. And so he gets on this ship and he runs away. And then in verses 6 through 13, the next section here, we find that God himself runs after the runner. That his pursuit continues no matter what. And that's what we find out in verses 6 through 13. God's in pursuit. You know, Psalm 139, another great psalm, says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Jonah knew that psalm. No doubt. It's post-Davidic. He can't truly hide from God. Nothing is outside of God's jurisdiction. So God hurls a great wind on the sea and a violent storm arises in verse 4. It's so violent, the sailors tremble. I've told stories before of my experience as a teenager being on a, a Mediterranean storm going to the island of Ibiza. And it was supposed to be a you know, one and a half hour trip from the coast of Spain to Ibiza. And our boat, took, our boat took nine hours to get there. The boat behind us, 14 hours. We lost an engine. Windows crashed. It was going up and down. There was a lot of other kinds of hurling going on. And, and that experience, other than the hurling of a violent storm as well, and it was awful. It was terrifying. We thought we were going to die. I was, what, 16, 17? And when you're that age, you think, nothing can touch me. I'm invincible. And then you get into a place like that where you realize I have no control over what's going on in my life. And in fact, when we even got, got there and a whole bunch of other things happened, more people became followers of God as a result of that experience than I've ever seen since. And the teenagers, because they realized I am mortal. I don't have control over everything. And my life does have an end point. And when you realize that, then you start saying, is there something more? Is there something bigger I can latch on to? Is there a God who's made this, who controls, even holds the seas in the palm of his hands? And the Bible says, yes, trust him. If you start trusting in your own agenda, whether that's financial success in the future or emotional stability in the future or whatever it may be, that is shaky ground, friends. And Jesus made the same thing. You want to build a solid life, build it on me. In my commandments, my words. That's the only sure foundation there is in this world. And when you're young and naive, or if you're just plain stubborn, you think you can make your own foundation. And when the storms come, you'll see how shaky that foundation is. They here then, along with me, recognize that we're in trouble. And I, I, I share that story in part not only because it, it was a, a setup, a divine setup for teenagers to say, I need something beyond myself. The sailors weren't concerned at all. We all thought we were going to die. They looked like they were just finishing lunch and going for something else. I mean, they were, you know, they were rocking around a little bit. We were riding apparently 20-foot waves, they said afterwards. So, up and down and up. And down for nine hours, up and down. We're gonna die. <laughs> and down and up and down. Oh, God save me. <laughs> if there's a God, please rescue me. Those sailors didn't seem concerned at all. So when I read a, something like this and the sailors are scared to death, that is a serious, so I'm telling you, that is some serious stuff. There's something really violent going on here. They are, this is their professional job. They're not scared of the ocean. Bring it on! But not these people. In fact, it's so violent, the sailors tremble. In verse 5, they're afraid, and they pray to their gods. 
And what's Jonah doing? He's asleep in the, I don't know if he took Ambien or something like that, or what, what he's, what's happening here. It seems to me this is, a, this is a sleep that's generated by a fake sense of peace. He's turned himself off to God's will. It's almost like he said, I'm just dialing it down and I don't care anymore. It's not genuine, obviously, but somehow he is just so uncaring, so apathetic, even to the things of God, that he's just going to slumber. He's consciously, willingly disobedient, and he seems to be okay with it. He doesn't care that he's not walking in God's ways. Yeah, so what? He's not listening to the wake-up call, is he? You know, C.S. Lewis talks about how God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. God's shouting to Jonah. And so God uses these sailors to kind of get the people around him. And that's a good prayer, right? If there's somebody in your life who's not listening to God, sometimes you might need to pray, God, put people in their lives who will shake this individual and show him or her they're headed in the wrong direction. I've done all I can. I've said it again and again. They don't seem to care. It's possible for us to be completely oblivious to the danger we are in and to the sin we are committing and to be completely comfortable with our disobedience. That, that's Jonah. And that describes the church a lot too. It also tells us that God is always after his servants. He is constantly sending us wake-up calls. The whole event gets the sailors' attention. They decide to cast lots and hope that this will clarify matters. That's what they did. That was a practice. And, you know, it's like the magic eight ball. Are we in this because of someone's sin? Yes. <laughs> is he sleeping down below? Yes. It's like, okay, it's Jonah. What are you doing? Even in that which appears to be chance, God's sovereign. And Jonah is interrogated, and in response to the sailors asking, what's going on? This is an amazing confession. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God of heaven. I mean, this is the most unwilling evangelist on the face of the planet. They're like, who are you? What are you doing? I guess, guess I'm a follower of God and of Israel, and he made everything, and... Um, you know, including you. And he's calling you to serve and follow him. So he's got his theology straight. He came right out of seminary. He's got all of the degrees. He's got his doctrine, but his heart's in rebellion against God. And these unbelievers, these non-Christian pagan sailors who probably curse like crazy and are doing everything that you would think of as not following in God's ways... They're acting more Christian than he is. And sometimes the world can look a lot more like the church. The sailors instinctively prey upon the trouble that came to them. What did Jonah do? He fell asleep. God uses these unbelieving sailors to intervene in Joe's life and call him to pray. Get up and call on your God in verse 6. And look at their response to his confession in verse 9. This is what, this is your God and you did What? He, he made all this stuff and you disobeyed him? And they're terrified. 
by his disobedience. If that's really who your God is, why aren't you following in his ways? Are you crazy? They show compassion on him. He didn't want to have compassion on anybody. But they show compassion on him. You know, he, he has a little moment of nobility. I guess you've got to throw me into the water. I mean, that's not something you would think of somebody doing, so there's some courage there too. But they say, we don't want to be responsible for your death. They care more about his life than he cares about theirs. He knows what would have fixed the problem. i got to jump over. It's on me. He's sleeping. They refused to pick him up and throw him into the water, verse 13. The, the church, people who call themselves followers of Christ, can say the right things but live a lot more like the world. But here... Due to Jonah's confession, this is the irony. Jonah wanted to flee to Tarshish so he would not have to be part of demonstrating God's compassion to everyone. And now he witnesses to a boat of all these sailors. And it's the irony of God. Jewish tradition says that representatives of the 70 nations known at the time were on the ship. Don't know if that's true or not, but obviously it was a very international crew. A lot of the nations were well represented. So God is not just pursuing his card-carrying servants, but the nations as well. Even when his servants do a lousy job of it. He was supposed to be confessing to the Ninevites. He didn't like them. They were enemies. Instead, he ends up witnessing to all the nations. <laughs> you see, don't fight against God, people. It's just futile. And he's calling you to, to do this. It's not just busy work. He knows how you're made and how you flourish and how you thrive. Now, the good news is we see some evidence of running in the right direction in the final verses here in, in 14 through 17. A turning back to God, if you will. Jonah's still figuring things out, but the sailors seem to be getting it. They become a picture of what it looks like to turn to cry, to, out to God. They cry out to God, the God of Israel in verse 14. They realize he's unmanageable. He cannot be controlled. Oh, look what they say. You, O Lord, have done as you pleased. It's not like Jonah said, you know, we do that sometimes. Like, okay, I'm following God. Now, God, here's what you need to do. And write, write out my agenda. But they're saying, I don't know. I can't dictate what God does. Clearly, he can control the weather. I can't control him. If it pleases you, God, would you? That's the sailors saying that. And the whole situation arose because Jonah did what he wanted, not what God wanted him to do. Now the sailors recognize the freedom of God to do as he chooses. They follow God's lead. In verse 15, as unconventional as it may seem, and they're finally willing to surrender. And notice what happens when they throw Jonah into the water. The sea grows calm. The Hebrew says they feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. They were terrified of the storm, but when the storm was quiet because Jonah went over, then they really got scared. They feared a great fear. But aren't you supposed to be happy when the storm is gone? They were scared because they realized this really is the true God, and he can control everything. And they were scared. So you cannot, can't manage this God. We've been headed in the wrong direction. And there's a revival that happens on this boat. 
All of them are finally willing to surrender. They sacrificed sacrifices, it says in the Hebrew, and they vowed vows. They feared God and they worshiped him. God has fashioned a brand new congregation on a boat to Tarshish. And the guy who was trying to run away and make sure nobody knew God's mercy and love and compassion was the very one that he used to bring that about. They pray, they listen, they act, they worship. That's running to God. That's what running to God looks like. They say, God, I'm going to follow you. That's a vow. They listen to what he says. They do what he says. They worship him. And the text doesn't tell us if this was a lasting commitment, but they show all the external signs of what you would call revival, a turning to God, a repentance. I'm not walking in my way anymore or following my agenda. I'm going to follow God's. I'm going to see what that looks like. Even if it takes me to places I don't want to go and to people I don't want to go to, that's the agenda I'm following. I can't see it, but I know that if this is a God who created everything and he's in control of my life, I'm going to trust him. Even the signs that Jonah failed to pay attention to, they're doing. They're running to God, not from him. So what does Jonah teach us about God? What that we've seen in this text. God speaks to us in his word. I mean, the word of God comes to Jonah. Does it come to us? We know it comes to us. God's given us his word, and it tells us how to live life, who we are, what went wrong, how we fix it, what it looks like to live in community before him in the small space and time that we have. He's the judge of all nations and men and women. He demands the obedience of his servants, not in a, a sort of negative way, but in a way that demonstrates the compassion they've received to give to others too. He pursues his servants even in their weaknesses. He gathers people from all nations and backgrounds for his worship. That's just chapter one of what Jonah tells us about God. And because he's involving people too, it tells us something about his servants. What does it tell us about God's servants? We're prone to wander. Every time you open a church door, you find servants of God who are sinners. There is one category true of everybody who came through the door today. We're sinners. And the only distinction is sinners and sinners saved by grace. Those who know that they are ho hopeless without God. That's the, only, that's the only distinction as we flow back out of here. We're either sinners or sinners saved by grace. And Jonah is a great picture of that reality. God's people, God's servants are broken. I heard a phrase some time ago, there is no cool in the kingdom, only sinners saved by grace. People with bad attitudes, lazy spirits, hostile tempers, petty differences, overwhelming apathy, nationalists, people who feel like they're superior. That's why we need the grace of God. We're all a mess. And it's not just about it, the things you do or don't do. It's about where you turn when you do or don't do those things. That's it. That's the great leveling ground. That's the gospel. We desperately need Christ. 
And, and then when we turn to him, of course, he doesn't leave us as we are. We're shaped by him, transformed more into his likeness, and we get the opportunity to tell others, I was just like you too. A total mess, and I found hope in the God of heaven and earth. These are the people he shapes and uses for his purposes. Real people, shady history, shady character, and all. If there's hope for Jonah, look, there's hope for us. That is, if we're looking in the right place, which is to the God we've been discussing. And that is what Jonah does in the next chapter. He starts getting there. And it takes some pretty dramatic occurrences for him to kind of right himself. But just, just so you know, he sort of wanders from that at the end again, too. See, we're a mess. That's why we come back again and again to the gospel, the good news of Christ. We desperately need Christ. We will till our last breath. There's a question maybe then you can ask yourself as you leave from here. How am I running from God? How are you maybe running away from what God has declared? Is there something obvious that he said, do this, and you're like, I got a better plan? It's not like we have to look in the sky. There's a lot that's been revealed to us in his word about what life looks like. And if you feel like things are a mess, it could be because you're not paying attention to what God has told you to do. So start there and run to him instead. Be honest, confess, and turn to him. There's an interesting parallel in the Gospel of Mark. Jonah prefigures Jesus in some ways, except that Jesus does all that Jonah fails to. Jesus is always running to God. And in fact, he is the perfect picture of God's revelation to us. He is the word of God himself. You want to know what God's like? Turn to Jesus. And in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, some sailors again are in a terrible storm and Jesus is with them. What's he doing? Do you remember? He's asleep. Just like Jonah was. But his is the peace that comes from resting in God's will, in God's good pleasure. He did all that God asks of him to do. And he's at rest. He's at peace. Even when there's a storm going on around him. They wake him up and, and they say, we're going to die. Do something about this. And he speaks a word. Quiet, be still, and the storm obeys. He didn't have to throw a man into the ocean or anything like that. He just speaks. And it says in verse 41, they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Why are they terrified? Because the God of the Old Testament is asleep in their boat. The God who through whom everything was created, is right there in the flesh. And he just speaks, and the storms are quieted. He has power over the wind and the waters. I guarantee you on that boat to Ibiza, if somebody said, be still, and it was still, we would be scared stiff. Who in the world is this person? I'm going to leave everything and follow him. Jesus was completely obedient where we are not. He is our only hope from rescue because he is God. So running to Christ is running to God. And Jonah chapter 1 says, stop running away from God. He's right here. He's offered to you in the person of Christ. And so when you call yourself a Christian, that's what you're saying. I'm following Christ. Stumbling around. 
I got people like Jonah and Paul and David, and I can almost any character in the Bible you name. They were not great people, but they served a great God. And that's the difference maker. And when that happens, the God who's the difference maker, he comes in and he begins to change us. Some of us have great acceleration on that growth curve. Others of us, after 50 years, you're like, not seeing much there, but if they're relying on God, he will not leave you unchanged. What that looks like, that's part of the journey. And so when we talk about church, we're saying, come on into the boat. We're trusting as best as we can in God with everybody around us. And yeah, no, we are all kind of messy but we're all following in the same direction. We're all running to God. That's the heart's desire. That's what the gospel is all about. Father, I do pray for us that you would show us ways maybe we are running away from you. Don't, hmm. I mean, if we're serious about that, we do want you to be gentle, but you might need to be forceful. It's not that we desire for storms to come in our lives, but we know sometimes a storm is the very thing we need to wake us from our slumber arouse us from our apathy. If, in fact, our key and chief desire is to run after God, would you show us how we're running away? Even if we're people who seem to have it all together. Boy, we'd love to be spared from that, of course. We'd love to bow these vows and sacrifice these sacrifices and sing these songs and pray these prayers and, and look for God's hand at work in all circumstances and and surrender everything to you just as we sang. And we'd love to conform more to the image of Christ without these hard things, but we do at the same time recognize if it's truly our desire to run to you, that you will be with us in the midst of that, no matter what. Because Christ himself on the cross is the only one who really experienced that full abandonment. He did everything perfect, took on our sin and the one who was God did not know his presence so that we could and that we can know there's no place that we will go where you are not if we are in Christ may that deep truth the love of God shown to us in Christ be ours and if we don't know what that looks like we're figuring it out some of us don't even understand these words would you give us understanding if the desire of our hearts to walk in your ways would you take that small, I want to, Lord, and guide us and steer our course toward the pleasure of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.